You're listening to the Halcyon podcast with Adam and Rob. And you have to say, that's magnificent. Hello all and welcome to the Halcyon podcast, where we'll be talking to some of the biggest names in football writing, to talk about their chapters for the new compendium of World Cup upsets against all odds. Ahead of the England-USA game, we are delighted to chat to the acclaimed writer and author of The Far Corner, Harry Pearson, about the 1950 meeting between the two sides that he writes about in the book, which was, by all accounts, slightly momentous. So, Harry, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Well, it's great to have you on board. And I just wanted to start off with um, asking you, so looking at that game, the US were not only a team of unknowns and they could only pick 18 players from the 22 that they were allowed. This is the first monumental World Cup upset, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is, yes. And I think, you know, the, the thing with the US, the US players is they were unknown in the US as well. They weren't just yeah. unknown to the English players. They were unknown yeah. to most Americans. I mean, that was the extraordinary thing about them. That you know they they also they didn't they didn't really know, they didn't know anything about the World Cup either you know because um, you know Walter Barr said I only knew about it because I'd played with guys who'd played in the in the thirty eight World Cup but that was all that he'd ever heard of it <laughs> and it was just like a sort of mystery to everyone. Was it a mystery that they even entered the competition to those players? Do you think? I think to an extent, although they done they done pretty well in the in the first World Cup in yeah. th- in thirty, and then yeah. you know thirty eight they went over, um, and they, no they bought, they boycotted thirty eight because of the because of the situation in Europe. But yeah, they they done pretty well in thirty and thirty four. Um, but then football in the football in the US had been much more popular in the twenties, and the, and then it, it sort of it had this massive dip in popularity for reasons that are that sort of remain opaque. Probably because baseball became more popular and became like the American game, and so then it was largely seen as a game that was for immigrants and played by immigrants. You know that was how it was perceived, um, and so the the background of the, the background of the team has a really kind of mixed sort of ethnic makeup with you know guys from obviously Gaetans from Haiti, there were players of Portuguese background, there were players of Italian background, players of German background, and then of course there were a lot of players who weren't American at all. <laughs> I was going yeah. to say we're missing the uh, missing the Scottish influence in this team. Well, yeah, were, yeah, because obviously, the, you know, there were the Scottish. There were several Scottish players in the team. There's a Belgian as well. Um, so you know, so they, they had a, they had a quite, a, and they were all players who were supposedly had applied for American citizenship, um, which was how why they were allowed to play for the US. Um, but then I think most of them never actually took took US citizenship in the end at all. No. And how big a deal was the World Cup in England at that time from your research? What did you find? Um, it, it was not a big deal at all. In fact, in fact, obviously England hadn't taken part in the first the first three World Cups because of because um, the FA wasn't a member of FIFA then. Because Frederick Wall, who was the kind of autocratic leader of the FA, had had left FIFA because of broken time payments to amateurs. Um, which obviously, you know, a, 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 a hot topic for the FA in the amateur <laughs> football. Um, so, so they weren't actually a member. So they weren't a member of FIFA until they, they rejoined just after the war, when when Stanley Rouse became um, president and he uh, secretary, and he and he changed 
the attitude of the FA in a way. I mean, he was a kind of he was a kind of internationalist, and obviously later on was president of FIFA as well. So no, it wasn't. And even in 1966, I mean, you know. Um, the, the the actual concept of the World Cup had to be explained to Harold Wilson even when it was being held in England because it was still, you know, it still wasn't considered a big deal in England. You know, the FA Cup final would be a much bigger deal than the World Cup final to most English people. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that the sort of reception of it generally in both countries how, aside, how big of a mismatch are we talking about here? Because the English well, were by and large fully professional in terms of what that meant in the day. Well, oh, yeah, they were. And I mean, they were still regarded, you know, as the, as the greatest football team in the world. I mean, you know, the, yeah. for, for, for whatever reason or however they'd held on to that title, mainly by, as I say in the chapter, mainly by not playing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best way for England to maintain their reputation was actually just to not to bother to play anyone at all. Um, but when they did, you know, they beat Italy and, you know, they, 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 they'd done well generally. And even coming into the World Cup, they'd had a, they had a really impressive record as, as, as England have taken Tended to do coming into tournaments, you know, recently, and where they've won all their friendly matches and beaten everyone, and they look great. So, yeah, I mean, they came into it; they were they were the favourites alongside Brazil and probably Uruguay as well. Um, you know, whereas the USA were, I think, five hundred to one outsiders, which was pretty generous, really. I think yeah. even the players, were, even the US players, would have considered that, you know, <laughs> a, a, a mad odds. I think. Yeah. And the fact that um, Stanley Matthews and Jackie Milburn were left out by the English, it seems a little strange from a, con- a, te- a contemporary audience looking back. Was there anything else that stood out as quite strange about that game in particular, the build-up or what happened on the pitch? Well, well I mean, it could sort of show, sees, shows in a way the way that the FA didn't really take the World Cup seriously because Stanley Matthews was sent off on this... Um, sort of goodwill tour to Canada and the US with a with a, a kind of shadow England team, yeah. and so he didn't actually arrive. He missed the first game because he didn't he didn't actually get there. And there was a Man United. I can't remember. There was a Man United player who was also on that tour. Man United also were allowed to tour the US at the same time. So all the the players arrived very late into South America. Well, con- considering that England had never played a game in South America before. You would think that some acclimatisation, but no. So, so Stanley Matthews arrived late. And I mean, people said, oh, the fact that England left him out showed how arrogant they were. But in fact, Matthews was never, he was never a fixture in the England team. He was dropped all the time. And he hadn't actually played for England for about 18 months before that. He'd missed nearly all the, the, um, the warm-up games um, because, because there was some sort of suspicion of him, I think, at the FA that he was, uh, he was too popular and too successful. Yeah. And he had to be kind of cut down a bit. I think that I think that generally is what the feeling that you get about him. Yeah, absolutely classic. <laughs> yeah, and I, and and also I I know that a lot of the, uh, the these players will have passed on a long time ago. But I was just wondering if you spoke to Wilf Mannion about about this you, game, did you? I, d- I did. Yeah, years and years ago. And I remember I remember I sort of said I oh, the USA game, and he just he just rolled his eyes and he said um, <laughs> we, we we couldn't have scored if we played till midnight. Yeah. And I think, in a way, I mean, when you read about it, it reminds me a bit of that game against Poland in '73 at Wembley, yeah. when you know England just mm. the players the players went off the field feeling that they played really well, you know, because yeah. obviously they just you know they absolutely battered Poland but didn't win, you know. Yeah. I mean, this was slightly different because they because they lost, but <laughs> yeah. I think that they, they you know footballers have quite, maybe more so then than now they had quite a fatalistic attitude 
you know, Wilf, Wilf has convinced, you know, they're, they're always convinced there were gypsy curses on the ground <laughs> and all these kind of things. So, so you know, so I think that there was a point, also Alf Ramsey as well said, you know, someone, because there was a protest late on that England thought they'd scored a goal that had crossed the line. And when Ramsey was asked about it, he said, it couldn't have crossed the line. It was like there was a force field on the line. We, we could never have got the ball across the line. It was impossible. You know, he'd sort of determined that. So, yeah. you know, they had that kind of, they had a kind of fatalistic outlook. So if the it's from from the chapter and obviously from what I can glean from reading about it, it sounds like they had, they had enough chances to probably win something like ten one. Did you find any truth to this? Is it an urban myth? Is it a sort of apocryphal tale that the score was reported as ten one? Because the English press couldn't possibly believe it had been one nil for the USA. No, I think it is apocryphal. If you look on the British yeah. newspaper archive, all the, the first papers that reported it all just have these calamitous headlines. Because also <laughs> the, the the same day that it happened, England lost to the West Indies in the Test match at Lords, yeah. the first time they'd ever lost to the West Indies. So these two things were kind of in British minds, were like the the sign of the collapse of empire and that everything had gone yes. terribly wrong for Britain. If only, if only yes, knew. again, yes, again, to be to be repeated every four years. <laughs> <laughs> no, from now until all eternity. But one of the other interesting things as well is that the, the, the way that the English players go there and the, all the excuses or, or reasons for our failures are the same in 1950. The players are tired after a long season. Yes. Um, it's yeah. too hot. It's too hot. <laughs> and the food, ooh, the food doesn't agree with them. <laughs> You know, and it's all the stuff that we've heard time and time again. And the American players, you think, you know, Frank Borgie was a bricklayer. He was working yes. full time as a bricklayer. Yeah. Were, the, were the English players actually that time? He'd been, he'd been laying bricks all year, Frank yeah. Borgie, you know, <laughs> from the American. You know, so how much tireder were they than he was? I find it hard to believe, you know. And then the heat, of course, and, you know, the the the, the terrible fried, for, the terrible foreign food. Walter Winterbottom memory complained that the, the hotel that they stayed in reeked of garlic. Oh you know. And the way that he says it, you can tell that English people everywhere were tutty. <laughs> that accounts for the first no goal, one, then. No yeah. It does exactly. Oh, the scent of garlic everywhere. Oh, no. Um, and I just wanted to end on um, the fact that I don't know about you, Harry, but I think the tragedy of the piece is that it wasn't for decades and decades afterwards that actually this team were were hailed in the states for this brilliant upset, and it it seems a real shame that that was that that's what happened. But it was. It, it took years and years. But I mean, when they when they when they left, the only people who saw them off were basically their wives and their wives and families. And when they arrived back, the the only people who welcomed them their wives and families. And Walter Bayer said that um, you know this this would remain a closely guarded secret amongst the American soccer community, which was absolutely true. Later on, it became you know the Gaetan's goal became the goal that was heard around the world, but yeah. it just it just wasn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> And because the English cricket team were losing, it wasn't even heard in England. No, it wasn't. Yeah, there was. A, it created some, you know, created some bad publicity, but not, you know, not the sort of thing we would see now, where everyone be threatened with firing and shooting and what have you. Yeah, career ender. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll find out on Friday. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we wanted to keep these short and sweet, so we will say goodbye to you. I will say this, Harry's chapter is absolutely brilliant, as you'd expect. And for this and a dozen more from other fabulous writers, uh, Against All Odds, The Greatest World Cup Upsets is available direct from us at halcyonpublishing.co.uk, Amazon Prime and various other places. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks,